Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Lenny Kaiser, security clearance processing times are improving, but once you obtain a security clearance, you may find yourself struggling to transfer that clearance eligibility to another agency. That's the topic of a recent report released by the Security Policy and Reform Council with the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, or INSA. Today, we're chatting with Larry Hanauer, Vice President of Policy at INSA, and Gregory Torres, Director of Personnel Security at Booz Allen and Personnel Security Working Group Chair of the Security Policy Reform Council at INSA. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining me here to talk about the paper. Happy to be here. Awesome. So my first question is for you, Larry. So what is INSA and why do you care about this topic of security clearance reform? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. So INSA is an association of government agencies, leading contractors and industry organizations and academic institutions. And we try to promote public-private collaboration in the intelligence community to make the intelligence community, the Defense Department, and others in the national security sector more effective and more efficient. We focus on a wide range of issues that affect both the public and private sectors, issues like technology development, the ability of the government to acquire and adopt innovative technology, cybersecurity best practices, acquisition reform, those sorts of things. Really, the business of intelligence. And one key issue for government and industry is security clearance reform. An effective security clearance process is absolutely necessary to enable industry support to government, right? Government agencies engage private companies to provide all kinds of support, either specialized expertise or additional resources and skills that government agencies don't have in-house, and they do that by contracting. But if the clearance process takes too long, or if it deters too many applicants from even applying for clear jobs, then industry can't provide enough people or the right people to support their government sponsors. Now, so as you mentioned, the government's made great strides in streamlining the security clearance process in recent years, but a lot of work is left to be done. Now, INSA has a working group that addresses these challenges and tries to develop actionable solutions. As you mentioned, it's we call it our Security Policy Reform Council, or SPRC, and it gathers experts from the public and private sector to identify and try to solve problems that, that affect the cleared community. It promotes information sharing, the adoption of best practices, and advocates for policy reform to make the clearance process more effective. So this new paper that we put out on personal mobility is just one of many initiatives we have going on to promote security clearance reform and to promote other policy changes that make the intelligence and national security community more efficient. Awesome. So it's clear INSA cares about this topic. Why write a paper specifically? Moving people around from agency to agency, which is called personnel mobility. Sometimes it's called reciprocity, but that's only a piece of the broader personnel mobility process. That's really important for both government and for industry. It's particularly critical for contractors who support multiple contracts at multiple agencies simultaneously. There may be some individual contractors who spend 40 hours a week supporting one client, but often individual contractors will will support a contract at two, three, four agencies at the same time, dividing up their time and dividing up their efforts. And it can take anywhere from a few days to several months and sometimes even more just to get an agency to accept as valid a security clearance that was granted by another agency. You would think that you know a top secret clearance is a top secret clearance is a top secret clearance. It shouldn't matter who granted it who did the investigation or accepted it and who you're transferring it to, but it does. Agencies often want to relook 
at some of the work that's been done. And so what that means is that contractors can't get to work on a new project at a new agency in a timely manner. And that hinders companies' ability to perform the work that they've been contracted to do. So with this paper, INSA wanted to identify the challenges to moving contractors between agencies. And the paper provides some very concrete examples of bottlenecks in agencies' processes. So we could propose ways to get contractors to work, to get them on site and get them to work more expeditiously. The challenge affects government employees as well, but they typically don't rotate between agencies very often, You know, maybe every few years if they change assignments. Whereas individual contractors support multiple agencies at the same time, it's really important that the personal mobility process work effectively so that they can support the government effectively. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to unpack all of the great insights from that report in this conversation. Obviously, I encourage everybody to check it out. We'll include it in the show notes here. But it really was a very well-written, like everything INSA does, white paper that really talks about this important topic. Okay. And so, Larry, I was hoping maybe you could walk me through. I know the report included five key recommendations. What were those specific recommendations? that you included in the report. Exactly right. Five recommendations for the government to just make the personal mobility process more efficient and improve outcomes. The first is for the Department of Defense to eliminate requirements that are specific to its 43 component organizations. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, having different rules in all of these organizations just creates a bureaucratic process that people need to work through. The Department of Defense should just make consistent requirements and, and processes across the board, assign a primary lead official who can make sure that can, there's consistency in policy and make sure that the process is sort of one-stop shopping. The second recommendation was to streamline top-secret SCI adjudications. Right now, if you don't need SCI access right away, but you're applying for a top-secret clearance, you'll only be adjudicated to the top-secret level. That means if you later on need access to SCI information, you have to go through another adjudication process, which takes additional time. We recommend that everyone being processed for a top-secret clearance be adjudicated for SCI access so that If they need it in the future, that adjudication has already been done. The adjudicative standards for both are essentially identical, so it really makes more sense to do that process once rather than have to go back later and do it again. The third recommendation we made is that agencies should consider counterintelligence polygraphs sufficient to begin work, even if they ordinarily require a full scope or a lifestyle polygraph. Having a counterintelligence polygraph is generally really sufficient, provides all the security information that agencies need to put people to work on site, give them access to information. And scheduling a full scope polygraph can take anywhere from a month or two to as long as 12 months. And that really just hinders the ability of contractors to get to work and do their jobs. So we recommend that agencies accept counterintelligence polygraphs as sufficient to begin work on site and to begin access, getting access to information while they wait for the full scope polygraph to be scheduled. The fourth recommendation is to provide industry with expanded access to the clearance repository. Right now, companies just can't see what's going on with their employees when they're being processed for clearance or or processed for mobility. And so it's difficult for companies to staff their contracts if they have no visibility into how their people are being assessed. So we recommend that companies be able to get access to these databases so they can see whether their employees are likely to meet the standards. And then the fifth recommendation is really another process one. It's to try to unify 
reporting timelines and timeline goals across agencies. Right now, agencies have such different practices, such different timelines. They report data differently. It's really difficult to get a handle on where the challenges are. So we recommend that ODNI and DOD designate a single person or, or a team that can oversee the implementation of all of the policies that impact personnel mobility and then report data that's consistent. So I kind of want you to talk a little bit, Greg, about some of the recommendations that you included in there. What impact would making those actually have on industry, on employers trying to hire and and retain and move people around in this space? I think really without a doubt, uh, the paper uh, and the associated presentation that we've already provided to some key government personnel really demonstrates that these recommendations would reduce delays uh, and costs to complete the clearance cross or mobility process. So when we say reduce costs, we're talking about the cost for both government and industry. Uh, the more efficient we can make this process, the less it'll cost. In terms of delays, there really is, without a doubt, a number of changes we could make that would significantly speed up the process as well. Honestly, I'd really like to see the mobility process work for industry similar to the way it works for some government situations. Uh, let me give you an example. In my last job with the government, I was working for one of the intelligence agencies. I was asked to accept a joint duty assignment at the Pentagon for a few years, not unlike what it's sometimes like for a contractor, the contractor community, meaning a contractor is working for one agency in a SCIF for a few years, that contract ends or they take a new job where the client is another government agency. In my case, my new boss at the Pentagon set up a start date for me and told me to have my security office send my clearances over to the Pentagon. I asked my security office to do that and it was done the next day. That was it. I was still an employee of the intelligence agency, but I was able to go right over the Pentagon, get issued a Pentagon badge, and start working in their skiff. In contrast, though, had I been working as a contractor for that same intelligence agency and needed to move to a new contract at the Pentagon, my program manager would have coordinated my arrival with the government contract representative at the Pentagon, but then a two to five week process would start to get me into the Pentagon skiff. Much of that time might be spent with me sitting in my new company for weeks waiting for this to happen. In other words, I was in a skiff yesterday, but it'll take me weeks to get back into another skiff. That's how different the process is. Yeah. And Larry, can you speak to that a little bit as well? Greg makes a great point. And, you know, as I said earlier, you would think that once you have a certain level clearance, a top secret clearance, that you could just carry that around with you to whatever agency you're supporting or whatever contract you're working on. But because agencies have these different processes for onboarding people and accepting their clearances, not only between government employees and contractors, as, as Greg just pointed out, but also just different processes between agencies. Some agencies bring people on board and process their clearances more effectively than others. It's also can be incredibly time consuming for staff with polygraphs who are in very short supply and agencies treat the polygraphs that are performed by different agencies differently than they treat the polygraphs that they perform themselves. So all of these complicated procedural differences and bureaucratic obstacles really have an impact on the mission. By making it harder for individual contractors to show up to work at their new agency or on their new project, 
It makes it hard for the companies to execute the contracts that they've been engaged on. And then, you know, it slows work down. It makes it harder to do the work. Sometimes organizations have to provide different personnel simply because whatever clearance they have or whatever, whoever granted their clearance makes it easier to put them on a project. So you may not get the best people on a project. You're getting the people that the agency will support. This all has an impact on mission. And so we tried to identify in this paper the obstacles, some of which Greg listed, and just try to to make this whole process more efficient so we can improve the execution of the mission. Yeah. And so reciprocity is kind of the term that we all tend to know and talk about. And that's something that INSA has addressed in the past in white papers. This paper specifically is, is more about mobility. So why the kind of pivot to a different term? Term, why is mobility maybe a broader issue for the IC government than just reciprocity? Greg, can you hit on that a little? Great question. So let me just start talking a little bit about reciprocity because reciprocity is an activity with a very specific meaning and scope, and it's defined in Security Executive Agent Directive Number 7, which is about reciprocity, obviously. Specifically, it really is about moving someone's security clearance eligibility from one cognizant security authority to another. One example might be for an individual whose clearance eligibility is in DOD System of Record, which is the Defense Information System for Security, or DIS, and it needs to be moved to perhaps the CIA. When the CIA reviews the previous investigation and eligibility type and dates, they are required by that document to reciprocally accept them under certain circumstances. So the five-day goal in that policy is measured from when someone asks an agency, like the CIA in this case, to review and accept a clearance eligibility that was granted by another agency until that agency says, yes, we do, we accept it. Well, that's reciprocity. It's only a portion of the process, and it's the shortest portion of a multi-step process to move someone from one job that requires a clearance to another. And it's the only portion of the process that is generally measured and has a timeliness goal. Some of the other parts include the broader requirement for us to create and send the government an SCI nomination package, for example. But the process of creating that package might be fast or it could take several days depending on how much information we need to collect from the employee, and that depends on the agency. Then the government reviews that nomination and renders a decision of which reciprocity is part of. That process can sometimes be very quick, perhaps one to three days like it is at the CIA, or it could take one to two weeks for other agencies. After that, depending on the agency, we may need to schedule with the agency the SCI indoctrination which could take a few days or a few weeks. In all, moving somebody from one government's gift to another could take two to five weeks of processing, of which sometime the reciprocity decision is part of, and sometimes it isn't. A good example is where it isn't for the movement of DOD. For example, if one of our new hired employees is sitting in a skiff in in one DOD agency and we need to move them to another DOD agency, there is no reciprocity decision to be made. The person's clearance eligibility is already in DOD system of record, so the two to five weeks in that case is not connected to making a reciprocity decision. We just need to remember that in this scenario, the employee was just sitting in a DOD skiff. They had to have their accesses debriefed and then wait two to five weeks to get back in. So reciprocity is one thing and it's very small, but mobility is talking about the whole end-to-end process of moving somebody from one classified program and sitting in another classified program. I think that's really the difference. Yeah. Did you have anything on that, Larry, as well? Why the mobility, you know, why INSA wanted to address mobility and expand on that conversation about reciprocity that you started a couple of years ago? 
Yeah. As Greg noted, personal mobility is just the broader challenge of getting people through these processes and getting them to work in multiple agencies. And, you know, just to give a sense of the scale and the scope of the problem, we're talking about 17 different intelligence community agencies and 43 different components of the Defense Department. So you can imagine if each one of them has different processes or different approach uh, to, uh, to, to accepting people who are coming to work for them, to accepting their clearances, that just, you know, is a, is a recipe for delays, increased costs, and slowed processes, slowed work. And again, to give a sense of the scope of the problem, there are about a million cleared contractors. And we've estimated just through an informal poll, more than 15% of industry's cleared population could be affected by these delays every year. So that means that, and this is, you know, just a, a, an estimate, as many as 150,000 contractor personnel could be affected by these delays each year. That has an extraordinary impact on the, the, the work that industry gets done for government and the ability of government agencies to, to accomplish their mission. Yeah, you talk about all the exceptions, which I, which I think is super relevant in the paper, and you broke down the inconsistencies across agencies. Can that be solved? And what are some of the steps that folks could take to address some of those inconsistencies in those individual agencies? Yeah, I'll talk to that a little bit. You know, the exception piece is really about previous clearance decisions that were made by exception. So what does this mean? This means that there was something outside of the norm that allowed the gaining agency to not accept reciprocally and gives them the opportunity to review the details and decide if they can accept the same risk as the previous agency. One example of that situation that might cause a clearance eligibility to be granted, like TSSCI by exception, is someone who marries a foreign national. In those cases, what generally causes delays is how long it takes the gaining agency to obtain the previous investigation, and how long it then takes them to re-adjudicate those cases. The good news is that if you look at INSA's 2019 paper on reciprocity, we cite two specific ways to improve that process, and the government is working to start reporting on the timeliness of those non-reciprocity timeline activities, which really have never been measured before so far as we can tell. But I'll give you one example. One specific way to speed up obtaining previous information is for each of the major adjudicative components within agencies to get electronic access to the other agencies, to see into their systems, to review what caused the previous exception and how they might mitigate that risk, rather than waiting days, weeks, or months to get a hard copy of that previous investigation. So let me give you an example. What if an IC agency gets a request for reciprocity of an individual whose eligibility by exception is visible in DOD system of record? So far as we can tell at this point, they have to send a request to get a copy of the original investigation. What we aren't sure of is how long that actually takes. The policy suggests that the agency that has the record should provide it within 10 days, but that certainly doesn't explain why some of these decisions can take months. That said, what if instead the IC agency was able to log into DOD's system of record that the DOD adjudicators used? This is a system where they document what the exception was. In the example from before that we discussed, they might find that the reason for the exception was someone married a spouse from the United Kingdom, and they might be able to say that they accept that risk. That would change the process from taking weeks or months to get that other investigation to perhaps minutes if they could log into the system that has the information. We're pretty sure the government is working to make this better, but that seems like one way to do it that might not be a heavy lift or very time consuming to change from a process perspective. Lindy, can I jump in for a second? I just want to address the exception issue. Throughout the intelligence community, information is shared, right? When you, after 9-11, agencies broke down silos so that people across agencies should access all the information that the intelligence community has that they need to do their job. 
So if you're sitting at agency X and, and that agency had decided that it was okay to give you access to SCI information, even though they had to, they had to provide an exception of such as, you know, you had married a, a foreign national, you're likely going to be accessing information in your job from agency Y. So if you now need to move to agency Y to support a contract, why would that agency need to reevaluate or re-adjudicate your background investigation? You've already been accessing that agency's information from your first job, but yet because agencies need to look at these exceptions or they feel the need to look at these exceptions and reevaluate them, it just creates a delay that adds very little, if anything, to security. Yeah, and I appreciate how the report provided guidance. You know, it's it's not you're not just presenting problems, you really have solutions in here specific to DOD, the IC and ODNI. Why is it important for each of those elements to take action on this mobility piece and how are their roles different? From an oversight perspective, let's talk ODNI. ODNI houses the security executive agent that outlines government-wide policies for these issues. But it also houses other key players, like the acquisition executives that have a role to play in deciding what requirements are placed into contracts and ensuring that unnecessary requirements aren't added to these contracts. For example, every time a contract is issued that restricts companies from nominating personnel who are not already fully cleared, it reduces the applicant pool, just as Larry mentioned a little bit ago, and it requires industry to use only the players that are already on the board. That means that industry needs to move someone from one classified job to another, either move a contractor or hire a departing government employee. It also means that they can't hire other highly skilled workers, or in some cases, even former military members, simply because they are not yet cleared or because they don't yet have a polygraph and only have the clearance. We think the acquisition community should really take a look at those particular practices. In the case of DOD, they have a tremendous role to play. It's clear that the work that was done by DCSA and OPM is what drove down the previous backlog. The great work on the investigation side with OPM and then DCSA, and the adjudicative work of DOD's consolidated adjudication facility. All fantastic work. But the DOD components are still very fragmented. The process for getting access to a TSSCI at one DOD agency is very different from the next, and it seems that each agency does better at some elements than others. But in short, they use different forms, different approval processes, and of course, they have different performance outcomes. This is also true for each of the IC agencies. I think we really hope that the takeaway from most of recent INSA paper on mobility is a series of questions that agency directors might use to peek under the hood, if you will, to ask the hard questions about why other agencies are better and or faster at one element or another, and use the best of breed to allow industry to deliver resources faster and more efficiently. Yep. And I really want to talk about what are some of the other clearance reform issues that INSA is engaged on? Larry, maybe can you speak to that? You've addressed reciprocity, mobility. What are some of the other hot topics around clearance reform that INSA is looking at? Yeah, there are a wide range of issues regarding security clearance reform that affect government and industry that we try to address. So we're continually engaged on the implementation of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative, which is an effort to reform and streamline the security clearance process across government. And so we regularly engage officials throughout the executive branch and through Congress and just share insights and information on the implementation of, of that initiative. We recently published a paper on the problems with the controlled unclassified information program, CUI, because that program just creates a thicket of rules for contractors 
that will complicate compliance, just create a lot of compliance requirements, and probably raise costs for contract execution. We've done a lot of work on insider threats, looking at best practices for managing the risks of remote work and mitigating unintentional bias. Looking forward, we've got a paper coming out soon on ways to to clear people with foreign ties more efficiently, right? The intelligence community really needs the cultural expertise and the language skills and the knowledge of people who may have foreign relatives or traveled abroad or just have family members with ties to foreign countries, but it's really hard to get them through the clearance process. So we're going to recommend some ways to make that process more efficient and streamline it. And then we're, we're doing a comparison of the government's adjudicative guidelines with some of the security vetting practices that are employed in commercial industry. Commercial companies are able to hire much more quickly and still maintain the security of their sensitive proprietary information. So we think there are probably some lessons learned there for the government as to how they can make their background investigation process more effective or just treat security a little bit differently. Ooh, I'm excited for that last one. That will be good. Anytime somebody starts talking adjudicative guidelines, I get pretty excited. So you don't know what they are, listener. You are in a you are in a special club. But I mean, I think there is a lot of relevance to how the commercial sector and is also having insider threat is also looking to maintain security. So I think there's good crossover and lessons learned. Well, I so appreciate your time and this topic. Thank you so much to Larry Hanauer with the Intelligence National Security Alliance, Gregory Torres with Booz Allen, and with the Intelligence National Security Alliance Security Policy Reform Council, really producing some meaty research here and actionable insights that can be used across government. I know folks are listening when you produce these white papers and you're really helping to advance the conversation about how we can improve this process and make it better. So I very much appreciate that. And I very much appreciate your time today. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.